We are so glad you are here this morning. Want to welcome you. Want to welcome those of you who are online. If you're a guest, I'm sorry. I don't know what else to say. But uh, I am so glad that you are here. Grab your Bibles, okay? Let's go to Ecclesiastes chapter 4 as we continue in this series. And as I knew what I was going to be speaking about today and just the relationships that Solomon is going to bring up, this song kind of came up in my mind and then it just kind of went from there, okay? And, uh, but think about the lyrics. One is the loneliest number. One's the loneliest number. And then if you keep kind of just following along with that, it says, two can be as bad as one. And I thought, what in the world does that have to do with? Probably eating spaghetti together. I don't know. But two can be as bad as one. And I started thinking, uh, you know, a lot of us, we can be around a lot of people. And you know this, and even in a crowd this size, there are people here today that feel lonely. That even though you're surrounded by people, there's surface relationships that happen. There is a passage of scripture, we're not going to look at it today, but I just want to make reference to it. It's in Mark chapter 14, and it's just days, even hours before Jesus is going to be crucified. And, and uh, you know that Jesus had close relationships with people. He had an inner circle of friends, and he had friends, and there was one particular lady that he was friends with, a lady named Mary, and, uh, and he was friends with her family. And she brought, if you'll read that passage another time, she brought this alabaster jar that was filled with this expensive perfume. And it was just like, just again, a few hours before his crucifixion. And she, do you know what she did? She broke that jar out and she poured that expensive perfume on the Lord. It was really, he even said it was, it was kind of like a, a, a preparation for his burial. And, 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 and what's interesting was there is a Christian author who wrote about that New Testament passage. It's a beautiful passage, right? You know that, the, that, that it speaks of this relationship. And we even sang about it just a moment ago. We pour ourselves out into worship of the Lord. And, and that's a beautiful thing. But this Christian author had another interesting take on this. Let me read you just an excerpt of this. Here came Mary with her alabaster vase of nard to dinner where Jesus was. So there was fellowship there. There was a relationship that was happening. She broke the bottle and she poured it out on him. An alabaster vase, milky white, veined, smooth, precious, pure nard inside. That was that, that oil that was there, okay? And it was very expensive. Poured it out, and here's what it says, now gone forever. Now according to John chapter 12, it says that, that the perfume of that filled the room. There was, this, there was this house now that was filled with this fragrance. And this is what this author said, and I thought it was interesting to take. Christians file into church on Sunday morning, one, uh, one by one, and they march like separate alabaster vases. They're contained. They're self-sufficient. Um, and, and, and they are very... Contents undisclosed. Contents undisclosed. No perfume for many of us emitting at all. Their vases aren't bad looking, right? It's about the exterior here. The vases aren't bad looking. In fact, some of them are the beautiful people. And they come very vase conscious. Conscious of their own vase and one another's. They're aware of these kinds of things. Clothes. Personalities. Positions in the world, all the exteriors, 
all the things on the outside. So before and after church, maybe even during, they are apt to talk, and she calls it this, vase talk. They know how to talk vase talk. Your ring is darling. What stone is that? Did you hear if Harry got that job? What's Lisa's boy doing for the summer? Is that, is that your own hair? I kind of take offense at that question there. I may take tennis lessons and George may join me. The author calls it this, vase talk. It's this external talk that we are good at. The stuff that's on the surface. We are all pretty good at this. We know how to keep the real contents disclosed, right? We, we know how to. For most of us, we're pretty good at keeping people at arm's distance. Because there is there's a vulnerability that is involved and a risk that happens in actually inviting somebody in some way really into my life. And doing some fellowship together, having, experiencing that real fellowship. Solomon, 3,000 years ago, is going to bring up what is still an incredibly relevant issue for us today. It's this issue that he notices, and I think he's feeling it himself, this issue of loneliness. Loneliness that... That people are dealing with and, and, and isolation and individualism. And ironically, what's interesting to me is we consider our culture and you think of the technology that we have, the ability to be able to kind of stay in touch all throughout the day, nonstop, Zoom, whatever it is. I mean, we have so many ways of communicating, social media, all of this. And remember what Solomon said, though, there's nothing new under the sun. What's he talking about there? Well, obviously, those are some new inventions. What he's talking about when he mentions these things is the human condition. No matter what age we live in, battles in life under the sun with the same kinds of things. There was loneliness then, and in spite of the technology, today you'd think we had found a way around this issue. We haven't. It's still very pervasive in our culture today. It's interesting that I saw this study that was prior to the pandemic. It, it came out and it said this, prior to the pandemic, that three out of five Americans feel lonely. I wonder what that is now, especially in light of the last 18 months that we've gone to. Three out of five are, are battling with loneliness on a regular basis. Chances are that there are some of you that are here this morning. And surface relationships, we could say this, those things are abundant, aren't they? I mean, we've got them all over the place. We know how to, how to have the external talk and keep up the image and keep up the appearance. And Now this morning, as we look in this passage in chapter 4, and I hope you're there with me because we're going to work through this passage together and kind of bring some things, some truths out of this. But I want to challenge you to do something. Don't come in here. I love what Danny said a minute ago. Don't just come in here go through the motions. You're here today to engage. You want to engage with God, and so here's what I want to ask you to do. I want to ask you to have some courage right now to ask God to help you today to, to assess a couple of things. I want, I want you to start with the health of your family relationships. I want you to assess the health of your marriage, that relationship there. If you're a married person, you may not be a married person. I want you to, to assess other relationships that you have. Maybe, you, maybe you're a parent. Maybe you are a brother or a sister. Assess the familial relationships, okay? And I want you to ask yourself some questions in this. How intentional am I really in cultivating that relationship? Here is what we know, and this is why we struggle 
with getting involved in relationships because life under the sun is broken, relationships get messy. And you may be there today and you're struggling with that. If you weren't here last week, you know we talked about bitterness and how that can really overcome many of our lives. And you know as a pastor, one of the things that, that I see on a regular basis as I do so many funerals and I'm with people in those moments that are kind of some of those final stages of their lives and it, and it, it breaks my heart on many occasions because so often the things that are spoken of in those moments are, it's often like a legacy of regrets. A legacy of, I wish I would have taken the initiative to try to make something right or to forgive that or to let that go or to move through it. Again, last week, you need to go watch that. It's not saying those things were okay. It's just saying that we oftentimes, as we looked last week, become a prisoner and we can't move forward and we stay stuck in our past. So there's a trail of, 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 of resentments and a trail of regrets. Here's another thing I want you to assess today, and this one's really important too, especially as a church that's growing and has multiple services. It's important that this is healthy within our church. We're not trying to build the biggest church. You know that, right? We want to build a healthy church. We want you to be connected. I want you to assess how well connected am I with fellow believers Am I in the life? Are other believers in my life and am I in their life? Here's a question for you. Am I serving others? Because that's a big part of being involved in the body of Christ. Is that everyone, we call it an aircraft carrier. Everyone has a role. Everyone has a, a, a part that, we, that makes this mission that we have of loving God, loving people, discipling others, making that happen. And, and many times we will, and this happens in the Western church, we will turn what is happening here into a show or into a performance. And we many times think that we're coming to be entertained. I know we do goofy things like what you just saw. It's to keep you engaged. But the reality is this, is that this isn't a show. This isn't a show that we're putting on. It's not a show for those of you who are out here online. I'm tickled that you're with us online. I had someone share with me before. We're watching online. My son watches up in Seattle. There's places all over. I love that. But one of the things that I want to be sure that is happening is that we don't turn this into just one more on-demand thing like Netflix. You know what I mean? That we are engaged in some kind of way with one another. I know some of you, you can't be here physically. By the way, you can be here physically and you could turn this into a show too. It's not supposed to be that. Church is not where we come. Church is who we are. Amen, right? It's, it's us engaged. You are engaged first vertically with God and then we are to be engaged with one another. As the Lord does work, you're here to, to not only have the Lord pour into your life, I want you to be thinking this way. When you start coming and you gather with us, who does God want you to bless today? Who needs a word of encouragement from you to go beyond vase talk, to go beyond this? So, so I want you to think about that. Now, one other thing that I've, I, I want to address before we read the text is this, is that I, I've had people who have even told me, we, we left EBC because it got too big. And that broke my heart, okay? And I know people have different preferences and styles, that's fine. But here's what I want to tell you, in my experience in ministry, throughout 30 plus years of this, I've served in small churches too. And can I tell you, there are lonely people in small churches too. 
And, and, and it's not the size of the church. If you look in the book of Acts, you see that, and we're not trying to be a big church, but you see that as we're growing, and we will keep growing, you keep lifting Jesus up, you keep loving people, you understand that this place is going to continue to fill up, right? Well, who do we tell they can't come? Do you see what I'm saying? You're here. Now, now join in the mission of helping us love this community because they need love because it's broken okay so I, I just don't want us to think it's not about the size of the church it's about the intentionality that you decide to have to get involved with a circle of people around you you know what we call that life groups that is the backbone of our church it's where ministry happens. It's where you serve one another and you're in each other's lives. You're doing life together. So I want to encourage you in this. I've seen, again, small churches that have lonely people in them too because it's the hearts of people that that's what matters, not the size of the church. If the, if the hearts of people are hard, then you find even in smaller churches, it, you can find that it's hard to penetrate that clique or that club. You know what I'm saying? It's about your heart and my heart. How do we love? How are we loving? Okay, let's look in Ecclesiastes 4. Let's start working through this. And you're going to see some desperation again from Solomon begin to emerge. Again, he says, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun. And behold, he says, the tears of the oppressed. I want you to say the next phrase with me out loud. Say it with me. And they had no one to comfort them. That sounds lonely, doesn't it? On the side of their oppressors, he says, was power. And there was no one to comfort them. They sound lonely too. There's some loneliness that he's noticing. And I thought, now that he gets dark right here. He doesn't pull punches. I've told you that. Solomon, he will let you know how he is feeling. And this is pretty dark. He says this, and I thought the dead who are already dead more fortunate than the living who are still alive. Wow. But better than both is he who has not yet been and, and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. He's even saying this. Do you feel his desperation? There's loneliness there. He's saying sometimes, and maybe you've said this before, I wish I was never born. There's, there's desperation there. People feel that. You, need to, you maybe have felt that, but you also need to know. I want you to hear this today. There may be somebody who's sitting on your row today or next to you that they feel that way today. That they're struggling with that. They may feel lonely. They need somebody to reach across the aisle. To have courage to talk to somebody that you don't know. To, to, to not just be, you know, a, a well-polished vase. But to risk even kind of being broken open. Okay, let's keep going. He goes on and he says this. And I saw the toil, verse 4, and the skill in work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. We'll break that down. This also is vanity. That's that Hebrew word, havel. Remember, it's the spray bottle where we talk about the vapor. It's here, then it's gone. It's just, it's here and gone. That's what he's saying. And then he uses another one of his favorites. It's striving after the wind. That's this exhaustion of trying to chase after something, and he's not satisfied. The fool 
folds his hands, and he eats his own flesh. So this speaks of laziness here. And then he's going to give this proverb. It's wise. Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and striving after the wind. What he's speaking of here is contentment. Contentment is a key, okay, in, in a happy life. And then he says, again, I saw vanity under the sun. Remember, under the sun is the broken condition that you and I are still living in right now until Jesus returns. One person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there is no end to all his toil. And his eyes are never satisfied with riches so that he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is, church, come on, vanity. And it's an unhappy business. So Solomon is noticing brokenness in relationships as he's looking around. And I really think that it's, it's, it's weighing on him heavily here. Just breaking down this understanding of loneliness, okay? What exactly is this? You need to know that loneliness is not the same thing as being alone. Because sometimes you're, you're hearing from somebody today that is naturally introverted. It's not that I don't love people. It's not that I don't uh, enjoy being here with you and doing life with people. I know I need that, but here is how I recharge. I must get by myself. Some of you understand. I recharge whenever I don't have to carry a conversation and I'm just by myself. Uh, and many times that's where the Lord will recharge my soul. Okay, it's like, like, like a battery that is being recharged. So you need to understand that, that being alone does not necessarily mean that you are you're lonely, but it can turn into that. Back this summer when you gifted me some time uh, to be able to assess myself and ask the Lord to work in my life and begin to recharge me, my wife is a school teacher, and she wasn't yet out of school, so I decided, and my kids were gone, I decided to do a little road trip by myself. And I went, and it was a powerful time of driving. That's mostly what I did. I drove uh, up north, and just I was going up north to Wyoming, and then I ended up going into South Dakota, and, uh, and I was there, and I was going to do some fishing, but that never happened. The Lord was dealing with me on some things. I decided to go by Mount Rushmore because I'd never been there before. And I got to that national park, and it was packed. And you know what I discovered? Everybody there was with someone <laughs> except for me. And so I looked really creepy there, okay? <laughs> I mean, even the presidents, there are four of them, right? They're together. I tried to insert myself into this. If you see, I took a selfie. They wouldn't let me in their club either. And it was like this moment where I went from being alone, which was good, to I drove all night to get home because I missed my community and my family. I mostly missed my wife. And it, so, but you can be alone and it not be loneliness, but it can turn into that, okay? And um, there's nothing wrong with being alone at times. Loneliness is different. I love how Warren Wiersbe, he defines loneliness like this, okay? It's, it's the best definition I've heard. Loneliness is a maltrition, a malnutrition of the soul that comes from living on substitutes, a malnutrition of the soul. Some of you connect with that. It resonates immediately. So Solomon is going to point out some factors that foster loneliness, okay? If we break this passage down, first he brings up oppressions. 
he says it, okay? And these are this oppression that comes from a place of power, wealth, status. He says, again, I saw all the what? Oppressions that are done under the sun. And behold, the tears of the oppressed. The oppressed, those who are marginalized, those who are pushed to the boundaries there, the outside looking in. And they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors, there was what? Power. And there was, this is interesting, no one to comfort them either. So he's noticing, I think, from both sides here, he notices that there is a tyranny that often emerges. Life under the sun, it happens. There are oppressors and there are those who are being oppressed. You got to figure out what category maybe you fall into today, okay, if you do. But he's seeing one group who will often kind of rise above another group. And he's seeing where there can be abuse, mistreatment. They can be, those who are being oppressed are being misused to the detriment of those, right, that are, are less fortunate here. Could be kings. Could be politicians. Could be uh, bosses. CEOs. Could be those who are just born into a status where they have money. Therefore, they have some power. Or influence. Now on a smaller scale, again, my wife is a school teacher, and she will come home and she will tell me stories about your kids. And you know what's interesting is as you hear, I hear the pecking order emerging. You know what I'm talking about? The pecking order, it happens. Why? Because we're broken. Your kids are broken too, all right? They're sinners. Um, I hear it. He says, there is tears. They have no comforter. And you may be one of those that you've gotten left out or you've been oppressed. You've been mistreated. And there's often this place of feeling helpless. And you're on the outside looking in. Maybe you can relate to that today. But I think that this is one aspect that he brings up. But I want to ask you a question. Who was the king? Solomon. Who was in power? Solomon. And I think he's, Chuck Swindoll calls it in his book on Ecclesiastes, Life on the Ragged Edge. He calls it the wine from the lonely dog on top. That leadership also can be very lonely. And if you're a leader, you know that. If you lead in certain ways, uh, maybe in a company, or maybe you're a leader in a church, or maybe you, you understand that as you lead out, that it can become this place where you yourself also can feel alienated. You can feel like, I don't want to let people in because if I do, well, they're going to use it against me. And so, so Solomon, I think, is at this place where he is... I think he, even though he has, you know how many wives he had, right? 700, he had 300 concubines. He had a lot of surface relationships. I think this man is desperately lonely. He's, he's messed up. And he feels he doesn't know who his friends really are. Because if you are a person who is in any place of power, you, you, you wonder that because you wonder if maybe you're getting used. You wonder if people love you just because of you or if they'll accept you just because, or do they just want to use you? So he's feeling it from both sides. I bought a book this summer about another king who felt incredible loneliness. And I want to read you a quote from this other king. 
I'm the most miserable young man you have ever seen. I've got more money than I could ever spend. I have thousands of fans out there. And I have a lot of people who call themselves my friends. But I am miserable. Now that sounds like Solomon could have written that, doesn't it? But this was another king. His name was Elvis Presley. And Elvis wrote that, or actually he said that, he had been out of church, he was at the pinnacle of his career, and he went to an Easter Sunday, and this is exactly what he told his pastor after the service. I'm miserable. I'm disconnected. I'm lonely. And you know his story, right? He, he, he said, I have thousands of friends. I just don't know who my real friend is. And so we see that those who are in places of position or power... If you've ever been in that place, you know that the higher up you go, the more danger one feels in letting others in because we just don't know who our friends really are. I think this fosters loneliness. Maybe you can relate. Here's another thing that he says, comparisons. Comparisons fosters loneliness. He says in verse 4, then I saw that all toil and all skill and work come from a man's, what does it say? Envy. Comparison jealousies, looking around, seeing everyone else's life, and you look at yours and you don't like what you see. And you're upset. And so we see this, this is a huge factor driving people in despair. And again, I'm not anti-social media, you know that, okay, it's not my thing, but I'm not against it. But I think it is a major factor in what contributes to loneliness is because, and it starts, it's, it's impacting our kids. We know this, right? Because everything that they look at is the best image of someone else. And there's filters and there's all these things that, that it's just not real life. There's good things that happen out there too, okay? But, but it not only happens with our kids, it happens with us. We see vacations that we are jealous that we didn't get to go on. Or it looks like their family picture. It looks like their... Con what we forget is everyone is jacked up. Everyone has flaws. Their family's just as broken as your family. But we get lost in that moment and we start comparing. And you know what it, it does? It, it fosters loneliness. Because here's what we start feeling like. We don't measure up. We're not as good. We sit... And, and, and it drives us to this place. Um, it's this, now in the business world or just in, as adults, okay, it, it drives us to this keeping up with the Joneses mentality that you're aware of. It's what drives rivalries in the corporate world. Competitiveness is not wrong, okay. I'm a competitive person, but I understand this. It's this, it's this level that you will get to where you will push anyone and everyone down to get yourself to the next rung of the ladder. If you're in the corporate world, you understand that. You're living that. You've experienced that probably. You'll do whatever it takes. It, 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 this was not like this revelatory statistic I came across, but it said this, that in the business world, in the office, 90% of people feel that jealousy. That they're struggling with this. And that's just human nature. And so you'll do whatever it takes to get to the top. Here's, here's where the loneliness comes in. Even neglect your family. Rob those who are most important of you 
This is where workaholism begins to emerge. And, and, and it's, it's, it's about this, and you will, you will do everything you can, what does he say, to get a little more, your eyes are never satisfied. And he says this, it, it, I believe it's, it's I've got to keep the image intact. I've got to keep it up. This is the person that gets to this place of, I am what I do. I am what I do. I am what I have. And Solomon says, you're chasing after the wind. And you know what else he says? It's exhausting. It's here and then it's gone. That's coming from a guy who understood this. Envy causes rivalries and rifts. It happens in families. Jealousies, right? We see the Bible's filled with that, of families that have brokenness because of rivalries. I think of Joseph and his brothers. We see it happen in the office. Maybe you're struggling with that right now, and it it just, it causes rifts. Do you realize this? This is sad, but let's get real. Life under the sun. It happens in churches, too. Because churches are made up of people. It happens amongst pastors, where we don't want to work with each other sometimes because, well, that's my turf. And that's a, and, and we started this church 22 years ago. And I'm grateful that I had, I had some pastors come alongside me. And they loved me. And they supported us. And as our church grew, it, our church maybe grew bigger than theirs. They still love me. They still support me. They are behind me. But do you know this? And I hate to tell you this, but I'm just keeping it real with you. I had some that detested that we started this church. I had some that wouldn't even speak to me. And it, it just, I, I was a young pastor, broken at that time too, from some past church hurts. And all that did was just fortify that even more. And so as I said, I've got my deepest wounds are pastor wounds, sadly. So anyhow, that happens. By the way, that is why we are a church planting church. And that's not just churches out of this area. We work hard at even planting churches in this community because EDC is not going to reach everyone. If we hadn't figured it out, we're in one of the fastest growing areas in the nation. And there needs to be different kinds of churches to reach different kinds of people. Some of them won't like lip sync stuff, okay, all right? Um, there needs to be different churches. One of our churches that we, that we partner with, I'm so excited about this new church. Uh, Shay and Robin Wood launched out. They launched out in the pandemic, and they had their soft launch this last week. They're meeting at AMC in Lake Worth. We're partnering with them. We support them. We, we, we financially come alongside them, and we love them. He shared with me this last week, they had 126 in their soft launch. Praise God for that, right? That's, you're involved in what's happening there. It, it, it's about the kingdom of God not our little empires that we build. That's, that's how we think. We want to we be about this. Solomon is pointing this out. Envy infects and it divides relationships. It creates loneliness. Here's another thing that he says is obsessions. There's this man who is or woman who is obsessed with possessions. Prestige, power. Verse 7. Again, I saw vanity under the sun. One person, if you have your Bibles open, that's a good phrase to circle. One person who has no other, either son or brother. Yet there is no end to all of his toil. This guy's a workaholic. His eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity. 
and an unhappy business. One person, this Hebrew word, echad, and it literally means the lone one. Guys, even the lone ranger had tonto, okay? When God created in the beginning, he said over and over again, it's good, it's good, it's good. And then he looked at man and what did he say? That's not good. That's not good. He's lonely. So God created and hardwired every one of us, whether it's a marriage relationship or not, you're hardwired, whether you're an introvert or an extrovert, you're hardwired for fellowship. It's a way we're made. And when that doesn't happen, it's a malnutrition of the soul. But this guy, he is obsessed with prestige, his image. He is obsessed and he is never content. And so he is obsessed with the desire to acquire, getting to the top. And when he gets there, he looks around and he discovers that there is collateral damage all around him. Because he sacrificed the things that actually matter the most to get this. And there's nobody there to even celebrate with him. And he's by himself. How many times do we see this? And there's resentment. He probably along the way, Solomon would say, along the way, this guy sacrificed his relationship with his kids, with his spouse, with his loved ones, because he had to get to the top. And then he got there. I love what Anthony Hopkins said. I shared it in the first week. I've been to the top, and I can tell you, there's nothing there. That's what he said. You know, I've never had a person sit with me and tell me how much they resented their father or mother. Um... Because they couldn't provide the best of the material things. Usually this is what is said. They did their best. They did their best. But I have had many who have sat with me who have resented their father or mother for this. They were absent. Not a part of their life. He says this obsession causes loneliness. Now he's going to begin to give us some advantages of com companionship. And I want you to remember, I want you assessing yourself Look at your life. Look at your priorities. Look at your relationships. Here's probably a better question. What would those who are around you say about those relationships? Because you more than likely, as we're going to read, have some blind spots. Okay? Verse 9, two are better than one. Because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls. Look at this. When he falls. Not if. When. And has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand the one who is coming against him. And then a threefold cord, it's even better. It's not quickly broken. What he's saying is the premise is, and this is a biblical premise, you're made for fellowship. Two are better than one. You're made to have people in your life. Three is even better, right? God said it's not good that man should be alone. So he looks at loneliness of the man and God says it's not good. You're created for community, to be with others. Yet our culture promotes independent mindset, not interdependence. Not codependence, that's not what I'm saying. Interdependence. Doing life together. Living life together, okay? And, and if there's anything we should have learned over the last 18 months, 
in the middle of a pandemic, something none of us have ever been through before, in Snowmageddon, in all the stuff. And I loved hearing the stories of people taking care of each other. You know what we should have learned in all of this? We need each other. We're made for fellowships. We're made to see each other's faces, right? And I know that you're trying to, you probably can think of someone that you don't want to see that, but you know what I'm saying. We're made to, to be able to touch. We're made to be able to hug. We're, we're made to be together. As much as I love and what our online stuff is doing and is, is making available, I love it. We're going to keep doing it. We're going to get better at it. But you know what we've been talking about? How do we get those people who are out there, how do we get them connected? Where it's not just, it's not just something they're observing, but they're actually doing life. I, I was so blessed by my son. We prayed that he would find some Christian friends where he's at as he serves in the Navy. I was blessed two Sunday nights ago. Luke sent me a picture of me preaching on a big screen, and he was doing church with three other sailors. And I was like, that's what I'm talking about. Okay, it's not just you're, you're, you're doing life, okay? So let's, let's work through this quickly. We need each other. Benefits of biblical fellowship, koinonia fellowship, that's in, it's in each other's lives. There's this, there's a reciprocal reward. There's reward. Two, he says, are better than one. i got to hurry here. Because they have a good reward for their toil. The original idea, I think that there was a partnership in business in some way. Now I know this, that partnerships can get messy and it gets difficult because you've got to learn to die to self and you've got to learn how to work through problems. But he's saying there's benefits. Now, I'm a church planter, which means I'm catalytic in nature. I start things, but I'm not an organizer. I don't do well in thinking of structural type things. So for the first 10 years of our church, our church was growing, and it was doing okay, all right? Um, but I know this. I got to a place where I didn't even know if I wanted to do this anymore because I was so burned out. And I was struggling because I was trying to do everything. We needed a small group's pastor, so I put uh, an ad out. I'd worked my networks and was coming up, you know, futile there. I put an ad out, and I got a call from one of my friends. It was Pastor Randy. I thought Pastor Randy was going to call me and, and recommend somebody. He said, hey, I've got somebody I want to recommend for the job. I said, you do? Oh, great. Good. You know him. Who is it? Me, is what he said. And he was at a place in his life where God was bringing him to a season of close. He'd been at a ministry for 20 years where he served faithfully at another church. And God, God did something by putting in his heart that it was time for him to move forward. And so we began a partnership. And I've shared this before. I was so broken at that point. God brought Pastor Randy, and I believe I'm still in ministry today. Because God brought me a partner to share the load. And the benefit is this. He's way better at so many things than I am. And I know that. And you know what? I celebrate it. And I'm way better than him in a lot of other ways. <laughs> he celebrates it too. But the reality is this. There's a partnership. So I had a personal reward. It's one of the best friends of my life. He's in here, so I'm getting emotional. And there's a partnership. There's a benefit. And you know what it takes because you got two 
alpha males. It takes dying to self. It takes yielding to each other. Isn't that what Jesus taught the disciples to do? Right? You know, whenever Jesus sent the disciples out, how did he send them out? Two by two. He paired them up, right? And I'm grateful for that. The benefit also, the reward, has been for this church because this church has grown exponentially. Because we share in that together, okay? So you see the reciprocal reward. I want you to think, okay, who is making me better? Who am I making better by having them in my life? How is that happening? Okay, and, and the other thing that Pastor Randy and I really share is we fully believe this because of some of the wounds that we've experienced in our past that a church should never be about one personality other than Jesus Christ. Because personalities come and go. The celebrity pastor mentality has hurt the church in America today. And so you got to die to self. Die to self, okay? Let's move on quickly here. Reciprocal, here's what we see next. Restoration. Reciprocal restoration. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. So there's a restoration, um, and it could be physical. I fell, someone's helping me up. I loved in the Olympics, there was some race runners that were running the 800, fierce competitors, Isaiah Jewett and Nigel Amos of Botswana. They tripped, their feet got tangled, and, and they felt horrible. They trained, but the other one reached out his hand and said, let's finish together. And they got to the finish line. That's what we as believers are supposed to be like when someone falls. We reach out. We die to self. We say, come on with me. You're going to finish this race as we get to the finish line where Jesus is. Come on. Come with me. When we fall, you're going to probably fall flat on your face at some point in business or maybe a trap of the enemy you might have a moral failure and you just really flub it up and just make a terrible decision. Before you judge someone, you need to take advice from Paul where Paul says, let those of you who think you stand take heed lest you fall. And then Paul would go on and say something like this. Dear brothers and sisters, if another believer is overcome by some sin, he's talking about in the church, you who are godly should berate him on Facebook. You should tweet about it. That is not what that says, is it? You should restore him gently and with humility. It's, it's not that there's not consequences. There's just love. There's love in how we come alongside someone who messes up. And then he goes on and he says, and be careful. Be careful not to fall into the same temptation yourself. Share each other's burdens. Share each other's burdens. And in the same way, obey the law of Christ. Which, by the way, that means love your neighbor as yourself. And then I love how Paul does not pull any punches. You ready? If you think you are too important to help someone, 
you are only fooling yourself. And I want you to read the next part with me out loud because Paul is going to smack us in the face today. Say it with me. You are not that important. (laughs) Here's what he's saying. Lose the self-importance. Lose the idea that it's your place to be the judge because you and I, we are not. God is. We're to be his hands, his feet, his arms, and seeking to restore a person who is broken in their sin, who welcomes that. Okay, Because there's some that are going to be like, get away from me. But when they're broken, we come alongside them and we get them back on the path. Reciprocal refreshment is another benefit. He says, if two lie together, they keep warm, but how can one keep warm alone? This is not a sexual passage here. What this is about is this is about a practical thing of giving and receiving that happens. They would travel in groups, and they wouldn't have a place to stay in this time, so it got cold at night. So the way that they would stay warm is they would huddle together, and that's how practically they would stay warm. Okay, and so here's the idea for us today. Am I only receiving all of the time? Or am I actually contributing and giving? That's the idea. How are you contributing? Who who are you refreshing by your service? All right, and here's the last thing. Reciprocal reinforcement. And what that means is, And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. In other words, you're not meant to go it alone because you have blind spots. They're blind spots. You need someone to be able to say, hey, I I got your back here. I'm in your life. I got your back. You realize this, okay? We have an enemy named Satan that takes delight in making you fall. And he is roaming about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour, and a predator will look for one who is isolated and weak. But the herd stays together and has each other's back. That's what it says. And then it goes on. It says three is even better than two. It means there's strength. Now, I'd say for our purposes today, we could say, especially when we have Christ woven in, it makes that strand really strong. Christ woven into the relationships. I want to invite you to bow with me. Those of you online, will you bow with me today as we just, as we consider what we've heard today. Loneliness, an antidote and a solution, I really believe this, is intentional friendliness. It's taking a risk. Today, maybe you are a lonely person. You feel that today. We love you. We're speaking to you today. But I want to encourage you. You've got to take a step of courage. And I want to ask you to do something. Reach out to one of your pastors. If you're online, message Pastor Will right now. Reach out to me. Reach out to Pastor Randy or Danny or Dustin or Jamie or, or, or Daniel. All of these guys. We're here to help you connect in the body of Christ. Maybe for you today, the Lord is speaking to you. Listen to him. Who do you need to reach out to today? Someone maybe you haven't seen in a while. Someone that needs a text from you. Someone that needs you reaching a hand out to pull them back onto the path. 
Maybe for you, the way the Lord would speak to you is your priorities are out of line and you know that and maybe your marriage is suffering or your relationship with your kids and the Lord is trying to get your attention today because you've got to understand something. Remember the passage a few weeks ago was about time. Time is ticking away. If you've never put your faith in Jesus Christ, I urge you to do that right now. Call upon him to be your savior. He says, I will come in to your life and I will never leave you and I will never forsake you. So Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the way that it encourages us, it instructs us, it corrects us. Lord, may we be known as one of the most loving and generous churches that loves this community as we serve them. One of the most generous churches. May we be known for that, God, by the way that we love the lonely.